Today's reading comes from Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, found on page 974. If your brother sins against you, go and show them their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah. Let's pray, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this good word. It's a life-giving word, Father. And we pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, instruct us into how we might live out this word in our regular daily lives. Speak, Lord. Your people are listening. Amen. There is no way any one of us can live without, with other human beings without us being hurt or hurting others. You might try. You might try to protect yourself and build whatever walls and barriers are in, but it ends up, as one author notes, being a coffin because there's no life there. Because we are broken people, because we are vulnerable creatures, we hurt one another. It means you cannot live with any other person in human community without being hurt or hurting. And the natural response for us as we experience that that hurt is fairly universal. We experience pain. We experience sadness. We experience anger. Sometimes it's shame. Sometimes it's a cocktail of all those together at the same time. It's a fairly basic human universal response to the pain that other people give to us. But the question is, what are you and I going to do with that pain? And we have two choices, pretty much. All human beings will take that pain when they receive it, and they will do one of two things. They will either transmit that pain to others, or they will have that pain transformed, healed, reconciled. We will transmit that pain, and we do it all the time. You do not have to look far, do you, to see every instance of how we as human individuals and collective societies do that. We transmit the pain we experience, and we hurt others, and it just generates suspicion and anger and cycles of revenge and vengeance. We will, if we don't have that pain transformed, with almost 100% certainty, we will transmit that pain to others. It doesn't have to be that way because Jesus, as we've been seeing, offers us a beautiful new hope, a new way for all of us hurting people who do experience pain and what we can do with that in our lives. We are walking through this series of how do we handle conflict. And we've seen that Jesus offers us this great opportunity where our conflicts can actually be opportunities. Opportunities where we can glorify God, where God can be recognized and praised and honored, where we can serve the good of other people around us. 
and also where we might grow to become more like Jesus Christ. Jesus lays out this process for us in this passage we've read. And one of the first things he does is he gives us uh, a new framing metaphor for how we might enter into and approach our conflicts. So often, it's really important to think through the metaphors we live with, the, the imaginational frameworks we live with, especially when it comes to conflicts. With our conflicts, the dominant, the operative metaphor we have as we approach a conflict, and I bet all of us do this, is this is a battle, right? This is war. And what that generates is antagonisms, this us versus them mentality. And when you think of war, you think of there's going to be blood. <laughs> this is going to get ugly. There will be casualties. So arm yourself to the teeth. Put on a defensive posture. Finger on the trigger. Get ready because this is battle. All those responses kick in probably without us even recognizing it because the dominant framing metaphor for how we approach and enter into conflict is this is a battle. Jesus offers us something even better, a new way, a different metaphor to enter conflict. He says, if a brother or sister sins against you, if a brother or sister, Jesus has a familial metaphor in which he has us frame and approach and enter our conflicts. We are a family, Jesus says. This is applicable even outside situations, outside the church context. Uh, there, there's a basic humanity that we can appeal to with other peoples. But Jesus is speaking to his followers here. And he's saying, listen, we are a family together. There is a core, because of the love of God for each one of us, this is who we are, our identity. You and I, the ones we are in conflict with, we are the beloved of God. No one can take that identity away from us. This is the core radical identity of who we are. And on the basis of that, this is how we approach our conflicts with one another. We are loved which means we treat one, the, if your opponent is not an enemy, your opponent is a brother or a sister whom is already loved, is an image bearer of God Almighty, our Father. And that changes our approach entirely. This is a person, actually, I can trust. They know the mercy of God. I can, I can count on that. They are aware of God's forgiveness of them and of me. And that that chastens the antagonism, that lays a foundation of unity that you can operate from. And it gives us hope, actually. It provides such a hopeful posture because you know that this conflict will not undo us. Often that's the fear we have with our conflicts. We fear engaging some of the hard, some of the real issues because we think, oh, it's too big a risk. Because if I say this, this might end the relationship. And I think we have to just almost in our minds remind ourselves, speak to ourselves that truth. This conflict will not undo us. Would you say that with me? This conflict will not undo us. Come on, say it. This conflict will not undo us. We need to tell ourselves that reality because it's rooted in we are a family and the bonds of love that God has connected us are greater than anything that might separate us. 
And so we can approach one another and we can deal with the tough issues and we're not going to sweep them under the carpet. No, we're going to deal with them forthrightly, in love, in truth, because we know that we are family together. So that framing metaphor Jesus gives us is just liberating in itself. But then Jesus lays out a very clear process for us. A step-by-step, very measured, very merciful, very honoring process by which we can engage the serious disagreements and disputes and conflicts we have. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, finally we're getting to some concrete action, right? We spent a number of weeks looking at sort of all the pre-work that we have to do in our conflicts dealing with our own plank in our eye before we deal with the speck in someone else's eye, Um, looking, inventorying our own sinful attitudes, generating a heart of humility. All that is such important pre-work that we need to do before we can actually begin to do business. It's like God has to do business with us before we can do business with others. But finally, we're getting to that point now. And Jesus lays out just clear passage, step one, Step one is personal and private. Jesus says, if a brother or sister sins against you, you go. You go. Now, this is a remarkable thing, because if someone sins against you, if someone hurts you, our culture says that places you in the victim posture, and you wait for someone else to come to you, right? Jesus says, no, 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 actually, you go. If someone, a brother or sister sins against you, you first go. Go. Not email. Not text them. Don't Facebook message them. Don't try to get at them through their spouse or through their friend. You go personally, face to face. And if you're not willing to take that step of you personally going, you have to ask yourself, is this an issue that I actually should overlook or set aside? Because maybe I'm making something bigger if it's not worth that step. You go first. And undergirding this is is this sense of familial responsibility. Jesus is saying we have a responsibility to one another to do this because we are family together. Um, As a church, we are not solo projects. We are not a collection, an aggregate of individuals. We are a community, which means your business is my business, and my business is your business. This is what we do as a family. We have a responsibility for one another, and that is an honoring, affirming thing. It says you as a person, as an image bearer of God, are worthy of being held to account for your actions. You are a responsible human being. This is the glory you carry about you. And therefore, I am actually going to talk to you about your actions. I am going to hold you account for your actions. This is a responsibility we have to one another, but also to Jesus Christ. And it's actually a humanizing thing to do. We hold each other fully as human beings when we do this. Jesus says, go to your brother and sister and show them their fault. Name the hurt identify the wrong that has been committed. Again, we do that because we hold people account for their their, their moral agents. They know good and evil. They know right and wrong. But it's also a reality check. 
Because what we're doing is we're seeking some objectivity. You're recognizing, I'm feeling hurt. I think that's a sin. I need to talk to them about it. But because we've done the pre-work of humility, I could be wrong. I could be seeing things incorrectly. And so we go and show them some of their fault because we're, we're interrogating reality with another person. We're saying, let's talk about this issue. I might be blind. And that's another undergirding reality here is Jesus is recognizing we are so prone to self-deception. We have so many blind spots, don't we? We just don't see accurately. Galatians 6 verse 1 says this. Paul says, if someone is caught in a sin, restore them gently. And it's an interesting phrase. If someone is caught in a sin, it's just like I got caught. I didn't see it coming. I, I was unaware of it. I'm surprised by it. And that is the nature of sin. It, it, it often blinds us. No one, no one, you know, enters a marriage and makes commitment vows intending that it's going to end in a bitter divorce. No one lifts a pint at lunch and expects to live a life of a secret alcoholic. No one starts a business career and intends to get so oppressed by their work to give themselves so fully that they neglect family and friends and children for the sake of work. But we come blind to those slow, incremental progress of sin in our lives. We get caught by it. And so what we need are people to speak truth, truth tellers to us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. He says, Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand that calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. It's an act of compassion of love for us to do this for one another. So maybe a question we got to ask ourselves is this. Whose life can you speak into? Whose life can you speak a direct, loving, truthful word? And maybe the reverse. Who are you open to allow someone to speak a word like that to you? That's, biblically speaking, all of us, all of us are allowed to speak into, and all of us need to be open to that reality. Now, I get, you know, because we're a wide church, a big church, we don't all know one another, so I hope it's your family who can speak into your life and you allow. I hope it's your home church. I hope it's your circle of friends. I hope it's an ever-expanding group of people that you are allowing to speak into your life. Because here's the thing, a life committed to the transformation and healing of our pain through reconciliation is a life that is also open and receptive to the challenges and the truth-telling of others around us. But Jesus says, do this privately. This is an honoring process. He says, do it just between the two of you. I love this, about this whole process Jesus lays out. It's, it's concerned about being respectful, about honoring Jesus is speaking this, remember, in a, in a cultural context that is an honor-shame culture. 
Our Western culture isn't so much like that. Many of us come from cultures like that, where honor and shame are big realities, and Jesus affirms that. This is a way to honor and, and the, the dignity of another person. Just do this privately. Do this respectfully. Do this in the safe context where all the personal stakes are lowered, you know, where all of a sudden your reputation isn't at stake here. Do this privately, just between the two of you. Now, this has implications for us, too. If someone begins to talk to you about a conflict they are having with another person, a question you need to ask right away, and you probably need to pause that person and say, hang on, before you say anything further, can I talk to you? Have you spoken to this other person already? Have you gone to them to talk about this reality? Because if they haven't, I need you to stop right now and not talk to me. You need to first go. Can, can we commit to doing that, friends? Like that is going to cut out a whole lot of garbage, a whole lot of backtalk, a whole lot of gossip right there if we commit ourselves to that simple practice. Just not allowing others to talk to us about a conflict they have with others unless they first go talk to others. And then also do this repeatedly. Jesus, the, the Greek of this is, is you go, and it's what's called the tense of it is a continuous action. So Jesus is thinking, it's not just a one-shot deal here. You're going to do this again and again and again. Maybe you're going to try a different approach this time. Maybe you're going to ask a different question. Maybe you're going to adopt a different posture, but you're going to do this repeatedly. This is not a one-shot deal. And the hope for outcome is if they listen. Jesus says, if they listen, you've won them back. If they listen. It's interesting, in each of these steps, that word listen gets repeated. It's, this is the hope for outcome. And, and it's not just that they hear. Um, it's that they hear with receptivity and they hear with understanding. That's what we're after is this understanding. So an important question for us to ask in all our conflicts is, am I the type of person that my brother or sister can listen to, can truly hear? Am I being that sort of person? And then Jesus says, you've won them over. If they listen, you've won them over. This is the goal, right? They're back in community. We're back in relationship. We've called someone back from a dangerous area of sin. We're back in together. This is the hope for outcome. This is the beautiful thing of it. And I love the word win back. Um, Jesus doesn't say we shame them back. We don't coerce them back. We don't blame them back. We don't, uh, we don't fight them or bully them back. We win them back by grace-filled, mercy-laden truth-telling. This is the approach. Now, all this... And we spend a lot of time on just step one. We'll, we'll quickly go through the other steps. All this, and I think that's appropriate. Most of our energy should be placed right here on step one. We do this repeatedly. We do this patiently. And ideally, this is as far as it should go, that this is the type of interactions we have among our church that it doesn't need to go any further. But Jesus knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows our capacity to get captive to being right or our stubbornness or hard-heartedness of heart. And so he says, okay, step two. If that doesn't work, if all your repeated efforts at a private encounter have failed, rinse and repeat, but with two others. 
So take one or two others with you and then repeat step one all over again. Jesus says, take one or two others and go. So again, it's a further pursuit of objectivity. What you're doing in getting others is other objective eyes on the situation because you know our tendency, we love to be judge, jury, and executioner all in one shot, right? We prejudge things. We have a prejudice towards things, situations, and so that needs to be chastened. And so you get one or two others that are going to help not only you but the other person as well. And, and do it by mutual agreement, if at all possible. You know, agree, yeah, we need to bring someone in. Because if step one has failed, you can certainly agree on this. All our attempts at this have failed. We need help. We can agree on that. Um, and so, if you can agree also on the people that you bring in, that is really important. Don't try to stack the deck in your favor. You know, bring your friends, your allies. Find respectful, godly, wise people that both parties would agree to. And even if the other person doesn't agree to this, you can still pursue this next step. You, you just say something, you know, like, our differences are too important for me to walk away from this. And I, the, the, Jesus commands me, the way of Jesus means I need to bring in some others to seek further resolution. And so if you won't do this cooperatively, I, I still need to pursue this. And you need to paint the picture that others are going to help us. They're going to help us communicate better. They're going to help us determine what some of the real issues are. And bringing others in helps also for step three of what Jesus outlines. Step three, Jesus says, if they still don't listen, tell the church. And those one or two others you've brought in step two are helpful because they can be, again, some objective people who can report, who can say, here's what we see is the conflict. Here's what we see is the situation. Now, it's obvious, but step three and four are only for Christians, right? If you're dealing with a non-Christian, you're not going to bring the church in, um, right? That's, of course not. Step one and two, I think, are equally applicable in work situations with colleagues and work, co-workers or neighbors. Steps three and four are stuff that only the church does. So Jesus says, tell the church. Now, that does not mean you come here Sunday morning and you start telling everyone, can you believe what so-and-so did to me? They hurt me so bad. That is not it at all. You don't publicly broadcast this in the church. What you do is you enlist the church leadership. So talk to your elder about this conflict that has, you've worked through very patiently, persistently, but there's no resolution. We need help. Talk to me, one of your pastors. Um, and what you're doing is you're enlisting the wider community. You're saying to this other person, we are part of a community that is following the way of Jesus. And we need that community's encouragement and support and guidance right now. Now, don't jump to this third step either. Um, this is only after you have patiently, persistently done step one, step two. But you involve the church as a representative of Jesus Christ. And that church, they'll probably consult witnesses, you know, they'll investigate. And they're always aiming at restoration, at reconciliation. 
And then step four, Jesus again recognizes sometimes our hearts are just so entrenched, so stubborn, so obstinate that we get stuck in ourselves. We become our worst enemy. And so there is one last step. Not a not something you want, but a step nonetheless that contains a seed of hope. And Jesus says, if they still will not listen to them, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. If they still will not listen, you release the relationship. Now this is less a statement that anyone makes, it's less an action that anyone takes, and it is more a recognition of reality. Here is the reality that we face. This person has consistently refused to follow the way of Jesus. This person is no longer living out the humility of Jesus. This person is not responsive whatsoever to godly counsel. And so you're just recognizing this person is not living the way of Jesus. They have stepped out of communion. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, treat them like a tax collector or a pagan. In that culture, tax collectors and pagans, they were outside of the communion, outside of the community. Um, and, and so what you do in this step is, again, you release the relationship. You once were in a relationship where you were a brother or sister. I could trust that you were operating on the gospel. I could trust that you were actually acting out of the way of Jesus. But your actions now are showing me that that is not the case. Your behavior demonstrates something else, that you're living outside the community. So this is just a recognition of that reality. Now, what does it mean to treat someone like a tax collector or a pagan? Well, look at the life of Jesus. Again, that's instructive for us. And what does Jesus do? Jesus loves them. And here's the seed of hope in all this, right? This is, this is a hopeful action. It is a call to love them and to pray for them. Thank goodness it is not a, a call to kill, to vilify, to scorn, to shame them. Every other system of community does just that. If you are found outside the community, you are excluded, we shame you, we condemn you, we vilify you. Sometimes that leads to killing. And if you think, well, that's only past societies, you know, we've progressed beyond that, please just go on social media and you can see the cycle of shame and exclusion happen in stunningly powerful ways. It is still with us. But Jesus says, no, you know what? None of that. Someone who you might treat like an outsider, you are called to love, you're called to pray for. Jesus ate with tax collectors. He called them to repentance. And this too is what we are called. It's a challenging process, isn't it? What Jesus lays out here. It's challenging for us conflict-averse people because we think, oh man, I do not have what it takes to do this. This is hard work. It's challenging for us conflict lovers because we have to engage in conflict now in a whole different way. We can't bully, we can't dominate, we can't just, boom, have it done. It is patient, respectful loving. And what's really fascinating about this passage is it is couched, surrounded, bookended by two parables of mercy. Just before this teaching of Jesus, Jesus teaches a parable on a shepherd going out to find a single lost sheep, about this heart of compassion of the shepherd to find that one lost sheep. And right at the end, it is the parable of an unforgiving servant, a servant who has received lavish mercy and then 
transmits pain to others. And Jesus condemns that and talks about the primacy of forgiveness, of mercy. All of our confronting of one another needs to be seasoned by mercy. Only mercy is going to transform the pain that we experience, is going to transform the course of justice. In confronting others, we are seeking some justice, right? To set things right. But as Shakespeare wrote, in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. None of us, of course. All of us are absolutely dependent upon mercy, the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And it's so important for us to remember in each of our conflicts to constantly bring back before our imagination and eyes the cross of Jesus Christ, how we see in that cross the mercy of God displayed, how Jesus took on our shame, our brokenness. Look repeatedly at the cross. Let the mercy of God soften your heart for any confrontation you need to engage in. Because in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. But you also got to know there's a beautiful promise of power for us here too. <clears throat> and we'll quickly close with this. At the very end of this passage, it wasn't read, but right in the middle of this, uh, at the end of this passage, Jesus gives us a promise that he will be with us in our conflicts. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be also. Now often we apply that, those words of Jesus, to worship or maybe to our Bible study, or to our prayer group we have with a couple of friends, one or two or three of us. Yes, Jesus is there. And that's a great application of it. But Jesus' first application is in our conflicts. When two or three of brothers and sisters are working out the mess of forgiveness, I am right there in the middle of it, transforming pain into healing. Whenever two or three of brothers and sisters are working out all the tensions that they are dealing with, Jesus promises, I am right there in the middle of it, empowering them to find and enjoy reconciliation. This is the hope, friends. We seek reconciliation and peace because we know Jesus is right there at that intersection of our pain and our conflicts, he's there with his presence. The world has just seen enough of people who transmit their pain to others. We see it all around us. I am so tired of it. In the world, in my life, passing along this pain that turns into antagonism and anger. In Jesus Christ, the wounds of pain are transformed into our forgiveness. By his wounds, Scripture says, we are healed, which now empowers us, people who get wounded, who experience pain, to see those wounds we have transformed into places of healing and reconciliation, making us agents of peace in this world. This is who God has redeemed us to be, called us to be, empowered us to be. Let's be those people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just such clear instruction. This is the wisdom of the world, God, that we need desperately. And our prayer, God, is that you would help us to live this out.
we hear it, and, and it's simple, but God, we know it's not easy. And we pray right now for every one of us who can call to mind immediately someone that they need to work this out with today. God, we pray that you would give us the power to do just that. Speak to us, Lord. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to be agents of reconciliation in this world. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord, the Prince of Peace. Amen. I need to add just a little addendum to the sermon. Don't worry, it won't be long. This process that Jesus outlines, it requires discernment. There are some situations that don't apply, like criminal situations. So I just need to say that. And there are some abuse situations in which a victim cannot encounter or engage with an abuser in this. And so these, these very tender, sensitive situations require discernment. So I just needed to caveat that and insert that um, so that you don't walk away thinking, oh my goodness, I gotta talk to someone who criminally harassed me or something. But with that, Would you receive the grace of God through a blessing? And if you would like prayer, because we know these are tender situations, we will have prayer partners available in that side transept um, after the service, and they would love to pray with you. But receive the blessing of God. May God's great, overflowing, super abundant grace fill you to overflowing. May the love of Christ our Savior, his mercy be imprinted deep upon your heart so that you know you are the beloved of God. And may the Spirit of God empower you to be a person of reconciliation in all your spheres of life. Amen. Go in the peace of God.